the Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hi, my name is Scarlett Lewis, and I am the founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Choose Love Podcast. Today, I am interviewing John Romano, who perpetrated a school shooting 20 years ago in his high school in New York. He was 16 years old at the time. He shot at a few of his classmates and hit one of his teachers in the leg. He pled guilty and spent the next 17 years in federal prison. He's out now and shared his story on the Choose Love podcast in hopes that it will shed some light on how and why school shootings happen and how to prevent them. I ask when you listen to keep your heart open to his story and what he has to say. I believe people can make mistakes, horrific ones, and be rehabilitated and come back to their true essence, which is, of course, love. I say this with some credibility because I've worked for years in prisons and have met many men and women who have done horrific things that have been transformed by choosing love. I believe that John wants to be part of the solution. I think a powerful way of doing this is to share his story so that we can understand the pain beneath these devastating tragedies. I've spoken to other school shooters as well because I want to ask the questions I didn't get to ask the man who murdered Jesse. What happened that caused you to do this? What needs weren't met? What could have been done that would have kept you from committing these atrocities? The answers are usually very similar, and it has to do with being seen. You'll hear that in this podcast as well. Don't discount the importance of this. As humans, we are desperate for validation and to be noticed. This is becoming more difficult with our addiction to cell phones and the disconnection it creates. I hope the takeaway for you is to think differently when you read about the next school shooting, to pause in the choice moment and get curious about the point of pain that started the downward trajectory in their lives. And I hope you can thoughtfully respond with love by doing a positive action to be part of the solution. This can look like having the courage to step outside of your own busyness, distraction, or even pain to help someone and forgiving those who've hurt you to free yourself from pain and helping others do the same. Making sure your kid's school has Choose Love so they can learn the essential life skills that enable us to manage adversity and grow from it. I believe in forgiveness. John did the prison time and he's wanting to help now. I think his story can do this. Thanks for listening. And as always, thank you for choosing love. So um, we'll just jump right in. Thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm, you know, I, I've been reading up on your story and I'm, I'm quite amazed and um, I, I can only imagine how difficult it is for you to, to be, you know, doing everything that you have been, but you've, you've managed to power through and I respect that. Yeah, I mean, I, I took a little bit of a different angle on what had happened than other people. And I really wanted to, instead of focusing on the problem, actually focus on the root cause of what started the problem so that we can address that and keep that suffering from happening, which I know that we can. And um, so I, I actually have a friend who sent me one of your TikToks. And she said, you should interview him for the Choose Love podcast. And I thought that was a great idea because what I have been doing is, is literally asking, going to the source, asking um, individuals who have perpetrated these crimes, uh, what happened? What happened? Because yeah. you were not born a school shooter. You were born right. just like every other human being, but something happened that cultivated you into, you became 
a, a school shooter. And and for for our audience, um, you know, a lot of our audience are educators, administrators, and parents. And I think that they would have the same burning question that I have been trying to figure out what happened that got you from being what should have been a a happy, well-adjusted kid into someone who wanted to murder his classmates and, and, and educators who had this murderous rage. Um, And so can you take us through your story, John, and help us understand what can lead somebody to getting to that place? Yeah, because um, I think it's also it's very important for for us to be speaking directly to people who are working with our kids and adolescents because they're the ones who are are interacting with them when they're outside of the household. But especially for parents who might not be aware of what's going on within their children sometimes or how to handle it when it's beyond their own um, knowledge of you know how do you handle a child who is suddenly like you said going from uh, what seems to be well-adjusted to somebody who is suicidal or even homicidal. Uh, so I share my story, you know, not to make excuses, not to blame anything, but to give people that that understanding of, uh, here are some of the things that came together in my story, and hopefully if we can identify it in others, we can prevent future tragedy. Because um, with me, yeah, my my story pretty much starts in childhood when i was four years old my father left and it kind of starts off with that feeling of abandonment and then even he didn't want visitation rights he didn't want anything to do with me in the beginning eventually he did and when i started to uh, have that other every other weekend visits with him when did um, that happen so you were with a single mom Was, was your mom a good mom yeah, no. So Did my she mom love was, you? My mom was definitely doing everything she could to help me. Um, and when I was at her house, everything was good. When I was with her side of the family, everything was good. You know, it was more my father's side of the family that was very dysfunctional and toxic. Um, you know, when I would go over there, I had a half brother who lived with my dad. And when I was five, six, seven years old, you know, he was sexually abusing me. And this kind of, I didn't know what he was doing to me, obviously, at that young age. Uh, I have learned that some of the things that I started to do were warning signs that maybe were missed because I started to regress. Even at that age of five, six, seven, I started to suddenly carry around my security blanket again. I started to suck my thumb again. And I've learned, I've had psychologists tell me that, yeah, this is signs of regression to comfort yourself when a child no longer knows how to um, go through what's happening to them. They regress into that toddler-like state. And I only share that because I hope that other people, if suddenly your your small child is, is doing something like this and you're confused, it might be something to be mindful that they're going through something that they can't comprehend, that they can't process. So they're regressing into that younger um, mindset. Uh, but so other than that, though, for people on the outside looking in, I was somebody who was playing Little League uh, for many years. I was played soccer. I had friends. I My grades were pretty good. Like I said, I was being raised by a single mother, but she was pretty amazing. And she was doing the best that she could at playing both roles. And she understood that my father wasn't a great role model. So she wanted to be the best role model that she could be. And for the most part, going into middle school, everything seemed to be fine. It wasn't until I was in the eighth grade that suddenly the other red flags started to appear. When my grades started to slip, I went from an A and B student to in eighth grade, I I failed or I was close to failing a class. And I was also at this time, unbeknownst to my mother or others, I I started drinking with friends at 12, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, 
originally it starts off as social and then it becomes something more. And then it becomes something where, you know, I started to feel something was missing within. I started to become more aware of what had happened to me at a younger age. I didn't know how people would react if anybody else knew about it. I started to believe that I had done something wrong, that I was guilty of something horrible. Hey, John, and, can I ask you, how long yeah. did that go on? So your parents divorced when you were four years old and then right. said around when you were so, five, that so started. So maybe about five, six years old, uh, probably lasted for a year or two. Um, it happened several times. And several times. How often did you see your dad or go so over there? I was, seeing, I was going over there like every other weekend. Um, for the most part, there were plenty of times where, you know, he would cancel for one reason or another. Um, but yeah, so that, so that was a pretty reoccurring thing, um, for, like I said, probably about a year or two, my, my sense of chronological, you know, timing and everything at, at such a young age is kind of off. Mm -hmm. Um, however, Did you ever confront your half brother, your step -brother? I, I never, I never spoke about it. Uh, I never dealt with it until I was already in prison. And even then it wasn't confronting him. It mm -hmm. was just, I was finally opening up and talking about this uh, to kind of deal with the, you know, I, I knew I had to, I had to open up and I had to be honest and vulnerable, not just with myself, but with other people around me mm -hmm. in order for me to get better. But mm -hmm. unfortunately I didn't do that until I was already in prison and I'd already spread my suffering to others. Okay, so let's go back to eighth grade when you started drinking with friends and you started failing classes. Yeah. And and started I'm, feeling, you started kind of, was it a sudden memory of what had happened when you were five or six? Or was this always something in the back of your head? Had you buried it for a while and it came back up? I'm just curious. Yeah, I had definitely buried it for a while. Uh, or maybe not even buried it as much as I didn't fully understand what had happened. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older when I started becoming more sexually aware that I realized looking back just how horrible of a thing this was. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I also, I started, you know, smoking weed uh, probably right after eighth grade going into high school, I started smoking weed. Uh, I was seeking that out again first with friends, but then I started smoking on my own. And my grades only got worse. And ninth grade, things only got worse. I stopped playing any sports. Uh, I was no longer, you know, uh, baseball had been my big thing growing up. Uh, I stopped doing that. I was still being social. So uh, my mom and other people didn't really think of it as too much of a problem. They just figured, okay, he doesn't want to be um, out there playing sports, but he's still hanging out with his friends and using his time that way. Uh, but then the depression kind of slowly creeps in and it's not like this sudden overnight, everything is falling apart. It's this sudden creeping on of, um, you know, like I said, my grades were slipping in eighth grade and then ninth grade, they were slipping more and more to the point where I failed the class, had to go into summer school. And I wasn't, I just wasn't being um, me anymore. I mean, were uh, you I, still seeing your father during this time? Yeah, so I was seeing my dad and it was also the issue of, now as I became older, I also saw that he was not the role model that I thought, because even as a small child, even as he left me, there's also that young boy looking up to his dad and thinking that he's the greatest person no matter what. But when I got older, I also started to see that, no, he, he was not that great of a person. He had a multitude of issues and he just didn't have the capability of being there for anybody but himself. Um, Where, where's, but, your, where's your stepbrother at this point? My, my half-brother, he was, so my half-brother, he was about nine years older than I was. Um, and so he had gone, let's see, right around uh, 2000, he signed up for the military. And so then, of course, my freshman year of high school is when 9-11 happens. And he is sent overseas into Afghanistan. And we hadn't really been, we didn't have much of a relationship at that point. But 
there was also a part of me that still looked to him in a, in a certain way for, okay, I was suppressing everything that happened. I didn't want to talk about what happened, but I was still looking for a brotherly relationship with him. And I was still looking for that acceptance and approval for him. And, you know, when I was living at home with my mom, on my mom's side of the family, I also had a half brother and a half sister who were both a bit older. And, you know, things were going well with them. But um, so with the age gap, my sister's about five years older than I and my brother, he's about also about nine years, 10 years older than I am. So I was never very super close with them. I was more close with my sister since she mm -hmm. was the closest in age with me. But she, you know, when she went away to college and it was just me living at home with my mom, then it's just kind of a, a little bit of isolation, a little bit at home where when, um, when I started to struggle more and more, she's no longer there because she was somebody who I could talk to a little bit. I never fully opened up with her. Mm -hmm. But she was definitely my confidant. Mm -hmm. And when she went away to college, it, it did kind of hurt a little bit. Um, but you never told her about what happened with your half-brother, right? No. Like I said, I was I was opening up with her. And um, even when I started to go to therapy, because then in 10th grade, I finally broke down. I was in school one day and I called my mom and I said, listen, I, I can't do this anymore. Something's going on. Like, I, I just don't feel right. I, I can't make it through the day. I can't, I can't make it to my next class. That's why I had been, the only trouble I'd really been getting in in school was when I would just skip class. And sometimes it was just, I, I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to have anything to do with what was going on. And I would just leave i would just go to the cafeteria and i would try to be more with friends and try to like distract myself with friendly conversation um but uh so i, I was really going down that path but when i opened up and said i need help i also started going to therapy but didn't open up all the way and that's probably one of the biggest issues that i talk about with people is in order to be able to get your life better, it's important to open up, to be vulnerable, and to shed light on that darkness within. Because they started to give me medication. And for a lot of people, that helps. For me, it, it, I started off on one antidepressant, and then that started to cause a little bit of anxiety. So they started to put me on anxiety medication. And then I had trouble sleeping. So they put me on sleeping pills. And then I was also eventually one of my teachers noticed um, I had been cutting myself and I've been covering it up. But one of my teachers noticed and called my mom and alerted the school and alerted everybody that this was going on. So my mom asked if I would be willing to voluntarily go into a mental hospital. And I said, yes. You know, I was believing that I'd only be there for a few days uh, just to get some intensive care and to get some help. And when was and, this in your 10th, year, 10th grade? Yeah, so this would have been um, 10th grade. And so when I went there, I, um, I was told pretty much that, no, we're gonna keep you here as long as we please. And my understanding was I thought, oh, I'm here voluntarily. I can leave whenever I want. No, you're, you're a minor. It's not up to you. It's up to your mom. And my mom was basically saying, whatever the doctor says, I'm mm -hmm. going with. Because, mm -hmm. again, she was beyond her scope of knowledge to deal with somebody who is, you know, I'm telling her and my therapist that I'm suicidal. She's now afraid that she's going to come home from work someday and find me dead. Mm -hmm. So... When I'm there in the hospital, I immediately say, oh, you've deceived me by telling me that I can leave whenever I want. That's how I, I went in. So I just started to lie and tell them whatever they wanted to hear in order to get out. And I was only there for a week and I hated it. And even this is when some of the problems with my school like really started to kick in because when I was there, um, we had mandatory school time as well in the mental hospital, but my high school refused to send any schoolwork to the hospital for me to do. So I would literally just have to sit there and they would just give me a book to read. And they told me, we've never seen this. And this is a, a local hospital. 
And they were telling me, we deal with all the high schools in the area. We've never had this happen before. And Why I do you started think they to did that. Why do you think they did that? Well, as it turns out, when I left and I went, I started going back to the school and I was asking for help. I was asking for an IEP. Uh-huh. I was asking for a reduction in my classes. When you say I was, was it you or was it your mom or was it uh, 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 I mean, it was a combination it was of your therapist as well, as well. Were they involved with the school? Yeah. So everybody okay. became involved where I was asking. And then, you know, my my mother reached out to them and even my therapist was sending in um, and my psychiatrist was sending in a letter basically saying, Yes, he's been diagnosed with clinical depression, uh, a reduction in, in classes or some type of IEP would be advisable to help him out. Mm-hmm. And the school said no. Even in their own paperwork, they admitted that um, clinical depression is something that would make me eligible for this. But they said no. They did not believe that um, this was something that would really be helpful to me in their opinion. They did not want to, as we found out later on, and even for many years after, they have no intention of really acknowledging anybody's mental health issues. And wait, say that again, as we found out, as we found out, right, for whatever reason, I don't know if they're afraid of uh, how it's perceived, but they really deny people's mental health. They have a history of doing that. They have a history of doing that. You know, and this was a classic example of I was the first person to ask for an IEP and for help uh, due to, you know, diagnosed clinical depression of any type of mental health. Besides, you know, uh, a lot of people who get them, maybe it's just behavioral issues or learning disabilities like dyslexia or something along that lines. And they refused. And was that your, was was that your sole diagnosis, clinical depression? Cl- clinical depression and general anxiety disorder. Okay. Um, so again, and I'm not trying to make excuses or blame them for what I would later do. I'm just kind of, uh, laying the groundwork of how my mind started to hold a grudge against them Mm -hmm. and to started to believe, well, I was feeling, uh, further isolated because not only that, when they denied me, they said, if we're not giving you what you need here, try homeschooling. Then if you don't like what we're doing, try homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And um, I did. But as so many people will tell you, that's one of the worst things you can do is to further isolate somebody who is struggling with depression. And so here I am trying to do my schoolwork, but I'm no longer able to interact with friends. So the only positive part of my education, you know, of usually going to school is hanging out with friends, you know, being a part of that everyday process. And yet that was suddenly no longer there. So and is this I, all in the 10th year, the, your 10th grade? Correct. Is this happening then? Okay. Yeah. And so pretty quickly I said, nope, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I send me back uh, to the school. I'll, I'll do what I can there. Um, however, obviously, when I go back, it's problematic. My mom ends up hiring an attorney uh, to try to get, you know, the help for me. And it was only with an attorney threatening lawsuits and publicity that the school finally said, okay, we'll give you an IEP. We'll give you the you know class reduction that my psychiatrist and everybody had been pushing for so that I could focus on the classes that I was passing. And, you know, there were so many classes that I hadn't really been going to. I hadn't been doing the work for, and I was going to fail them anyways. So I was able to pass a couple of classes and... I still had to go to summer school. And again, I held that grudge against the school of if we'd only done this sooner, if only I'd gotten this, I could have um, passed more of my classes. I could have done well. They wouldn't even give me the tutoring that I've been asking for, you know. You didn't get tutoring in your IEP? Well, I'm saying before the IEP, like they have like a a tutoring program and... And you were um, failing your, you were failing at least one class, right? Oh, I was failing a couple of classes. Yeah. And you and, asked you know, for tutoring in those classes? I was asking denied? for tutoring and like, you know, I could stay after class and, and be with the teacher or with other students, but like they had a program in which there was, um, 
you know, like a teacher's aide that was in going around and helping people out. And again, that was something that was denied to me until basically May of the school year. And I'd already failed everything. That's when they finally gave me my IEP was a couple of weeks before the end of the school year. Hmm. That's not too helpful because I know, I know from personal experience, it takes quite a while to set those up. Um, So when you said, John, that you started to hold a grudge Mm -hmm. towards the school, was it just, was that grudge developing? Was the hard feeling towards the actual school or was it towards uh, individual adults that you worked with within the school? I'm just curious. Yeah. So there was definitely a a grudge towards one or two uh, of the adults of the, you know, the main principal. Um, But yeah, I mean, as a whole, there was just kind of an overall, they didn't want to help me. They don't care about me. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty much blaming the school in its entirety. Um, and I, and yeah, so again, when I returned the following year, even though I had failed most of my classes and they were calling me a junior, but I was basically retaking a lot of my sophomore classes, it's, uh, I was doing a little bit better where I had been um managing my depression a little bit better however this becomes the other issue is when i was doing better feeling better and people were happy they were proud of me proud of the progress i was making i was also then afraid to admit when i was still struggling when i was still kind of having those moments of you know two sto- two steps forward one step back I didn't want to admit to that one step back. You know, I wanted everybody to see me as doing nothing but progressing, as doing nothing but getting better, that all of the bad things was behind us. And I I became even further afraid to admit to all these things, even in therapy. I didn't want to shed light on that darkness within. And that's what I tell people the most is, I wish I could have told my teenage self to, just be open and to share and to, you you can only get your life back on track when you're admitting and discussing all the things going on within you. You know, you're not going to go to a doctor and only tell him, you know, um, one or two things and expect for everything to get better. It's just not the way it works. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I wish more than anything that I had realized that and had been courageous enough, as you talk about courage, if I had been courageous enough to fully open up and to deal with everything going on within me. Because then as as the school year goes on and I turn 16 and I start um, looking into, you know, okay, well, things yet again aren't working at the school. Even though I had the IEP and I had a little bit of extra help, my mind just wasn't in it. Um, but can so, I ask, John, when you yeah. say um, I didn't share everything within mm-hmm. me, what were those things that you wish that you had shared then? Yeah, so I wish that I had been more upfront about when I was doing better, but I still had those late nights where I couldn't fall asleep and my mind just starts racing and the thoughts of, you know, self-doubt, self-hatred, the suicidal thoughts start to creep in. But you know what? Then I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling better. And it's, oh no, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want, you know, that's that's not happening all the time. So I didn't want to to bring that stuff up. And that's what I wish I had No, is if it's happening even just once in a while, you have to address it. You have mm-hmm. to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when I was now 16 and I wanted to drop out and I wanted to just get my GED, um, I'd also learned that uh, I couldn't do that because I turned 16 after the school year started. And I basically mm-hmm. said, well, I'm not going to go anyways. I got to find something else that I can do. And we discovered that I could do a continuing education program at the local community college. And I could be earning college credits, taking college courses while earning my GED. 
and I tested for it at the college and yeah, I, I was approved. Even though now I was basically double enrolled, I was not allowed to drop out of high school, but now I was enrolled in the community college. And in January of 2004, there I was, you know, now I've got, um, I'm starting up taking classes at the college. I'm feeling better. I'm feeling like, all right, things are moving forward. All that stuff is behind me. Um, but there was still the problems of now I'm not around my regular friends. Now I'm in the college. And even though I was 16 and even though I was a bigger guy, I also felt like I didn't fit in because between six stages of 16 and 18 is a big gap. And I remember being very self-conscious and not really fitting in and not really, you know, I didn't have the ability to make friends there because I felt like, oh, as soon as they find out that I'm a couple years younger, nobody's going to want to talk to me. Nobody's going to want to hang out with me. So I was also not only double enrolled, but now I'm kind of feeling like I'm living, trying to live two different lives where I'm trying to maintain the friendships with my friends at school, at high school. Mm -hmm. And I'm also going to classes at this community college where I'm, I'm just not fitting in. I'm you know, just feeling like an outsider. And it, it was difficult. I mean, I still, I was dating and I had friends and all these things, but it just wasn't the same, obviously, because I'm not in the high school every, you know, I'm not going there with everybody Monday through Friday. I'm missing out on so much of that interaction with people. So. Were you just seeing friends on the weekends? Yeah, so it's like, you know, hanging out on the weekends or at this time, social media wasn't there, but like AOL Instant Messenger, you know, so chatting with friends after uh, in the evenings and everything. Um, and my girlfriend at that time, uh, she lived nearby me, so we would hang out sometimes during the weekdays. But there was definitely, I started to feel more and more disconnected. And so I was just kind of like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll power through and I'll push through. But things really start to come to a head when my half brother who had um, been abusing me when I was younger and he had been in the military and his military time was coming to an end. He was coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq and he was basically saying he wanted to, to hang out. He wanted to go hunting. He wanted to spend time together. I was like, all right, yeah, no problem. That sounds, you know, maybe we can rehash this relationship. Uh, because again, I wasn't dealing with what he had done to me. I was suppressing it. I didn't want to acknowledge it. I didn't want to admit to it. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to be brothers despite what he had done to me because I didn't want it to be even present in my mind that no, I can't be around him because of what he did to me. I didn't even want to acknowledge that. So... Uh, yeah, I started to talk to my mom about it, and she was obviously against me being around firearms in any way. Did um, she know? Did she know about what happened with you and your half brother? No, had you told her? Okay, you no, did. like I said, oh, I, no. I didn't talk about it until okay. years later. Okay. Um, so she, but, so she didn't want you to be around the firearms, right? So I've been around firearms a little bit, um, really before my depression came up like they weren't in the house but my other brother he had some pistols and so you know i've been to the firing range a few times with him um but then she still didn't want it in the household even then because of my age but then when uh, the depression kicked in and i started admitting that i was suicidal of course she did not want them in the house but here i am later on um on the outside doing better and i'm not admitting to that I'm still struggling at times. And I'm telling her I'm, I'm doing better. I am. And I went in and told my therapist about it. And I said, you know, I just want to be able to, to hang out with my brother, to be able to go hunting. What do you think? And he said, yeah, he didn't see a problem with it. And he, he brought my mom in. And we both still remember that very specifically when he told my mom, you have your son back. Those were his exact words. And that to my mom was, oh, okay, like this has just been like a really bad patch in his, you know, teenage years that some kids go through. He's doing better now. And even my psychi psychiatrist said the same thing as 
no, she had no problem with me being around firearms. She said, you know, you're, you're okay. And now, were you still on medication at this point for depression? So, so yeah, so at this point, I had been taken off of all of my medication except for Xanax. Um, I was still on Xanax to deal with uh, some of the anxiety issues that I was struggling with. But so Xanax been, periodically, or, or or did you take it on a regular basis? A pretty regular basis. I was um, given it until basically three times a day or as needed. Um, so yeah. Um, it's a pretty liberal prescription, I would think. Yeah. So when were you were you taking it like it was prescribed only a few times a day or I'm just curious what your usage was? Yeah, so I was taking it regularly. Um, you know, I wasn't abusing it. Um, I didn't even think of it. I didn't learn until later on that Xanax is kind of like a narcotic that's very popular among people. I just saw it as just another medication uh, because I'd been on so many. Uh, it was just another medication to help me and help with your anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when my mother hears that my therapist, my psychiatrist, they both say that they don't have a problem with me being around firearms. Okay. She even um, speaks with the local police department and says, Hey, is there anything I should be mindful of, you know, law wise or What's the issue of having firearms in the household? I have a 16 year old son. And they basically say, just keep it locked up. You know, other than that, you know, that's it. And there was a a local gun store that was going out of business. And so my mom said, hey, why don't we go down there? We'll take advantage of, you know, they're having a going out of business sale. Said, all right, yeah, sure. And so she started to look at shotguns um, because she had done a bit of uh, like skeet shooting and, you know, target shooting in her younger years. And so, yeah, so she was interested in that for herself. And she figured I could use it when I went hunting with my brother. So that's what uh, she did. She, you know, she bought one of them. And What kind of gun did she buy for you? Uh, so it was a 12-gauge shotgun. It was a Winchester. And, yeah, I mean... You know, when we were doing that, when we were at the gun store, there was no ill intent in my mind. And this is on Saturday. This is actually two days before the shooting. And in my mind, I'm just kind of like, all right, great. Like, this will be um, something that I'm able to, you know, use to go hunting. Like, I felt trusted. I felt believed in. But then the problem was, was later on that day when, you know, some other family and friends hear about this they're concerned and they share that concern with me out of their love because they're still afraid that I might, you know, hurt myself or kill myself. But in my mind, I start to distort that of, oh, you don't believe in me. You don't trust me. I've been doing all of these things to get my life on track. I've been, you know, opening up in therapy, although I really wasn't. But this is what I'm telling myself is, I've been moving forward. Why don't you believe in me? Why don't you trust me? Why don't you see me as just like everybody else? And I start to downward spiral. And even as I'm out Saturday night with friends and we're having a great time, but as they're sharing their concerns of like, oh shit, like John, be careful. You know, we're worried about you. They loved me. You know, they, they, they still saw me as a great friend, but they were concerned. And yeah, by Sunday morning, I'm waking up and I'm just kind of like, you know what? Nobody believes in me. I'm never going to be trusted. I'm never going to be seen like everybody else. Everything I've ever thought about doing for the rest of my life is never going to happen. And I start to just be like, all right, I got to end it. I got to die. That's the only way. And I start telling myself that and I start thinking about it more and more. And I'd thought about it obviously many times before, but now here I am also thinking about, you know what? I don't want my mom to come home and find me like she was always afraid of. And I start to blame the school. I start to say, you know what? It's their fault that my life hasn't gone the way it should have. I didn't want to take accountability. I didn't want to say that it was my fault, that there was more that I could have done. So I wanted to blame others. 
-hmm. I wanted to not just blame them, but now I wanted to make sure that they felt my pain. And I wanted to turn what did it turn to that? So it started out as suicidal ideation, which right. you were already having anyway, but you weren't telling people. Right. And had you ever thought about how you would commit suicide before you got the gun? Yeah. So I mean, uh I'd thought about it and I'd actually attempted it um at one point, you know, right before I went to the uh to the mental hospital as well. I was not only cutting myself, but I hadn't told people I had uh taken a whole bunch of pills and swallowed them with whiskey, you know. What kind um, of pills? I don't even remember to be honest with you. I just went into the medicine cabinet popped open whatever was there. Like I didn't do any research on it. Um, I was just thinking like, all right, if I take a whole bunch of, I remember one of them was um, uh, a whole bunch of um, NyQuil, you know, because I remember thinking like, all right, this is the stuff that really like, you know, makes you drowsy, puts you to sleep. If I take a whole bunch of it, you know, hopefully this is going to be something that'll put me out permanently. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just end up for the next few days, I woke up and I was just, you know, violently ill. And my mom thought that I just had the stomach flu. Mm -hmm. um, but so now that I had my hands on a gun, now I'm thinking there's no attempt. There's no pain. I'm not gonna wake up after a failed attempt in pain. I'm going to pull the trigger and I'll be dead. That's it, you know, but again, I also thought about if I do it at home or if I go out into the woods, I'll just be forgotten. Nobody will even know that I'm gone. Because again, I'm not at the high school. I'm at the community college where I never really even made an attempt to fit in. And I'm thinking my friends won't even notice that I'm gone for, for a while. Did you feel seen at the community college? Did you, did, uh, did the teachers, did you feel like the teachers knew your name, knew you? Did you talk mm -hmm. with people while you were there? I'm just curious. Yeah. So like I did talk a little bit with, um, you know, with some of my classmates there and it was probably more in my head. Like I probably fit in more than I realized. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were class sizes where, no, you know, the, the professors didn't know who I was. They didn't, you know, I, I'm just one of 30 or 40 people who signed up for their class. And uh, I didn't really make an attempt to connect. Um, I was only there for about a month until the shooting happened. But, um, but yeah, so I, I wanted to force myself to be seen, to force myself to be heard to force people to feel my pain, you know, cause I didn't want to be just, you know, I didn't want to just disappear and have people forget about me. There was that desire to be remembered, to not be so, forgotten. So John, and, did you, did you ever uh, look at other school shooters? Did you ever um, research how they did it and and how how far in advance had you been doing that i'm just curious yeah so i tell people like i was in middle school when columbine happened i don't really remember um you know that day or even the next day but i do remember kind of the um the atmosphere changed where suddenly we all realized like somebody can come in here and start shooting and i wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, I did end up reading later on a bit about uh, Columbine and about others. I wouldn't call it research as much as I was initially afraid of mm -hmm. actually, I was afraid of being a victim. You mm -hmm. know, that was a part of my, my anxiety. I remember um, not wanting to sit next to the door in a classroom because I figured if somebody comes in and starts shooting, they're gonna shoot at the people who are closest to them first. And I remember thinking about that. I remember wanting to sit next to a window because I'm thinking if anything happens, I'm going out the window if I'm on the first floor classroom. Yep. You know, so I actually was afraid of this. And eventually I started to, you know, become interested in, I wanted to be able to protect myself. I wanted, I had a knife for a little while. I wanted a gun because I felt like I wanted to be able to protect myself. But then it also, when I did get my hands on a gun and it's, you know, it's not 
something where people believe in me, where people trust in me. Now it's, you know, going from wanting to protect myself to wanting to kill myself and wanting to use it as a tool of destruction, of spreading that pain and suffering to others, you know. Um, so my, when I went into my school, my intent was not to go on a killing spree. My intent was to traumatize, to terrorize, and to make sure that I was seen and heard. Okay, you know? so wait a minute. You actually bought the gun on Friday? Saturday, my mom bought on it. On Saturday. And then you ha you start having these thoughts because you are you have suicidal ideation anyway. You start mm -hmm. thinking, I wow, now I have a gun. I could use this to kill myself. And right. then you start thinking about your mom finding your body and this is so sad and whose fault is it? And it's, it's the school's fault. So that's Sunday you have that. And then right. you go into your school on Monday, Monday morning, Monday morning. That was a, so this is, this is not a thought out planned. When you this bought that gun on a Friday, you did not have a thought about no. I was excited to be able to, like I said, to go hunting. My mom talked about skeet shooting. That's what I was thinking about, you know. And although I had suicidal tendencies. Um, and you had a grudge against your school. And I had a grudge, but I had also believed in my mind. I was, you know, I was upset at that moment. Like when, you know, when we're in the gun store. You know, I'm not thinking about the high school that much. Any, you know, I'm still in my mind thinking, you know what? I'm moving forward with my life. I'm getting the progress that I've always wanted. I've started at the community college and although things aren't great there, you know, I'm doing something and I have a future. But it was that sudden downward spiral when people shared their love and concern for me. I started to say, I have no future. I have no future where people will believe in me, where they'll trust me. And yeah, so this was a very spur of the moment thing. This was not a long planned out, you know, shooting. This was not something where I really had much of a plan because I literally, you know, to go into that morning, you know, I drive myself into school late and I know that even though I'm not attending it anymore, I'm still technically a student and I just throw on a backpack. The gun is in its case, which is like a hard plastic case, which I know people will just see me and assume that it's like an instrument case. Hmm. And I walk in. And, you know, walk uh, like in, said, you open the door, you just walk. Yeah. Okay. I walk, I walk into the, into my high school, right in through the front door and yeah, there's, there's nobody there. So I just walk through and I go up to the second floor where the classrooms and everything is. And, but it's at that moment that again, I don't have a plan. I don't have any idea of what I'm doing. I just kind of gone on autopilot. So now I'm going up in there and I'm just kind of like, all right, let me go into the bathroom. You know, so I go into the bathroom, I go into the stall and I, you know, for a while, I'm just sitting there thinking. What's going what? through your head? Honestly, you know, now that I'm actually in there, I'm wanting to leave. You know, like now that this idea of what I would do is becoming a reality, I'm second guessing myself and I'm just kind of like, I wanted to leave. And, you know, I, I became, became afraid that, okay, I was able to get in no problem. But what happens if I'm walking out the door? Somebody's going to see me and say, what are you doing? And I would start becoming afraid of, you know, getting caught that way. So I start to tell myself I'm at the point of no return. You know, I can't stop. I have to do this now. And that's the other thing I always want to tell people is it's never too late to stop, you know. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm sitting there for a while and I'd even sent um you know a, a couple of text messages i i even tried calling one or two of my friends because i'm thinking like I, I part of me is still trying to talk myself out of it part of me is still trying to figure out somebody can help me get out of here you but know? you're you're texting your friends there's going to be a school shooting you need to leave the school right 
that that was the last text message that I sent um, was when I said, I'm in school with a gun, get out. Those were my words. And, um, but I had sent previous ones and I'd made previous phone calls. Um, while you were in the bathroom? While I was sitting in the bathroom. And what were those? Those were pretty much just me reaching out and trying to be like, hey, what's up? Because I'm just trying to get somebody to, to talk back with me and to basically maybe- uh, Talk you, you know, out of it? Talk me out of it, you know, to help calm me down. And Did you reach to, anyone? No, you know, but again, I also look back and I realized I could have called my mom. I could have called my therapist. I could have made so many other phone calls or done something. But it was also the, you know, the fear of, and I think the same reason why I never opened up to my mom about just how suicidal I was, or I never opened up to my mom or others about the sexual abuse is also, and I tell parents this all the time, is sometimes as kids, we try to protect our family. We try to protect our parents from what's going on within us. And I didn't want to admit to her. And I didn't even want to call her from that bathroom stall because in my mind, it was either all or nothing. Either I'm going to somehow get out of here without her knowing or I'm going to die, you know. But eventually, yeah, I believe I'm at the point of no return. And I send a text message to my friends and I say, I'm in school with a gun. Get out. And it's because I didn't want them to see me. I wanted people to see me, to feel my pain. I wanted them to forever remember seeing me that day with that gun and to feel that terror. But I didn't want that for my friends. That's why I sent them the text. And yeah, I don't know if you want to talk how much about like what actually happened with the shooting. Yeah, let's talk about it. So, you know, um, I'd been in there for a while and I remember you know, one class period ends and I waited. Heard the bell? The, yeah, so the bell rings and, you know, everybody's in the hallway. You know, mm -hmm. people even come into the bathroom and I'm still sitting there. And I've now, I'm sitting there with the shotgun in my hands and I'm in the stall and nobody knows. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I wait because I want basically to be able to go out into an empty hallway. Mm -hmm. So I wait for a while, you know, the bell rings, next period starts and I wait another minute or two, and that's when I come out. But as I'm starting to walk out of the bathroom, I've got the shotgun down at my hips, and then suddenly this one student, he's starting to come into the bathroom, and he sees me, and he freezes in terror. And uh, I still remember he says, this can't be happening. You know, this can't be real. Did you know him? No. Okay. You know? Um, but, you know, he's right there. He's literally maybe three feet in front of me. So you're still in the bathroom and he's coming in as you're well, going no, as out. I'm, I'm walking out. So it's kind of one of those like little privacy hallways, you know what I mean? Okay. As you're entering in, okay. I'm literally walking out, walking into the main hallway as he's coming around the corner and to enter into the bathroom. So I've got the gun down on my hips. I'm walking forward as he's now walking towards me when he freezes and stands in front of me saying that this can't be real. And, you know, he turns around after a moment and runs away. And I just walk out of the bathroom and I come around the corner and, you know, I, I hadn't fired at him, but when I come around the corner, I now see two other students coming around the other corner about 40 feet away. And with them far enough away, I point the gun up and away from them and I fire, you know. So had he, he ran away ostensibly to tell people that he- He, he ran away and he, he, I later learned out that he basically ran away, ran into the very first classroom that was right there, you know, slams the door shut. Okay, so those kids that went, that came around the corner, they had no idea that they were going to be facing a gunman. Right. So like I said, as, um, you know, when I come around the corner, now I'm talking about these are kids who hadn't seen um, the first students because they're coming around another corner down the hallway, 40 feet away from where um, the bathroom was. So when I come out and I come around that corner and I see them, you know, one of them actually screams out, oh, shit. And I remember that because he's right in front of a classroom where right now it's everybody else. It's any other day. 
And there was a teacher in that classroom who hears him yelling that. And I remember her saying to him, I, she says, you know, watch your mouth, watch your language. Because to her, it's any other day, you know. So that's why she hears a student yelling that. And that's all she's thinking is, you know, watch your mouth. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I pointed up and away from them and I fired. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, immediately they go and they go right back, you know, from around the corner where they were. And I fire her again. And so you fired, just, you fired into the ceiling. Yeah. So the very first one went, um, like I said, up into the ceiling and kind of hit uh, into the corner because it's birdshot. I'm also using seven and a half grade birdshot. So we're not dealing with slugs or buckshot. We're dealing with small birdshot pellets. And um, so, it's so a that pretty scatter big... pattern isn't that large, correct? Um, it, well, because of the distance of how far, like, right. you know, it, it spread pretty far. Okay. Um, but um, as I showing people, you know, the, the video that the police took later on, yeah, it went up into the ceiling. It hit some of the, the upper parts of the wall. Mm. And, um, you know, so I, I wasn't shooting at them. You know, I was more of making a statement of I'm here and I'm, you know, terrorizing them. I'm traumatizing them, you know, to this day, 20 years later, they're, they're still suffering because of me. Mm-hmm. I, What's I going through to. your head? What's going through your head at that time? What thoughts are you thinking? Are you thinking maniacal thoughts like, uh, you know, that that you have the power now? Or I'm just curious what your thoughts Honestly, at that point, I'm on autopilot. You know, I'm not really even in my mind. There's not a lot of thoughts going through. I'm just going through the motions. You know, like when people say that they saw me that day and my face was just blank, like there was nothing there. It's because I completely separated myself from what I was doing. I, you know, I wasn't fully there in the moment. I was just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. And after I fired those two shots, now I'm just walking around. And in my mind, I'm thinking either. So the I'm two shots, to- so you, you shot one uh, above the kids that were coming around the corner. And then what was your right. second shot? So then the second shot ends up going um, like they came around a corner from my perspective on the left. I fired again to the right, but now this time it hits the wall, you know, Um and it hits the wall closer to me, kind of, you know, in between where they were and where I was, mm-hmm. um, you know. So it was, again, away from where they had been, even though they had run away. Um, but, yeah. And so that second shot, when it hits the wall also, now it's everybody in those classrooms is now feeling not only hearing the explosion of the the shotgun going off now they're feeling as the wall and everything is shaking from that second shot mm-hmm. was that a wall adjacent to a classroom was there a classroom yeah, so that was that wall? yeah that was a, an out you know that was a wall connected to a classroom that's it's you know um basically they had these like metal type walls um so it's you know basically now shaking everything and now I'm just walking around. I'm walking up and down the hall. And like I said, I figured I'd either wait for the police to come or I would finally be able to, you know, pull the trigger on myself. But as I'm walking down the hall, it's completely empty. All these classroom doors are closed. I'm not even paying too much attention to them until out of the corner of my eye, I notice one of the classroom doors is open. And I walk over and I step into the doorway and I look in and I see everybody on the ground hiding from me. And um, I see the teacher at the front and she just kind of looks up at me in terror and she calls out, oh Lord. And there's even one student who pops up her head above the desk because she had just been one of the people I was hanging out with Saturday night. You know, I was with a large group of friends. Her and I weren't close, but she's now looking at me with recognition, but also terror and confusion. But I think all I wanted at that moment was to, again, to be seen, but also 
now you're going to see something that you're never going to unsee. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the heat.